The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church and Pastor Greg Davis in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about Cashin FBC, please visit cashinfbc.org. Would you turn in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You're probably familiar with this chapter because it has been appropriately titled the love chapter. And most often we think about this chapter in the context of marriage. You've probably been to a 50th wedding anniversary and somebody recited 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as they think about the faithfulness of a couple over the years and and they recite this. Somebody may even say it from memory. Or you've been to a wedding where they have read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we call the love chapter. And I think this is an appropriate application of this text. And I don't have a problem with it being read at at, uh, weddings or at anniversaries. And as a matter of fact, every ceremony that I do, at the end of the ceremony, I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, through uh, verse 8. But if we're being honest with the context of this scripture... I want you to understand something. It has more to do with the church than it does that it has to do with marriage. That's the full context of this. Everything to do with the church body and not really uh, applied to marriage in this particular context. So with that said, would you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 1 through 8. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I Surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love. It profits me nothing. You could probably quote this with me. Love is patient and love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, help us to grasp the depth of your love for us. Bible tells us when we stare at the cross, when we gaze at the cross, the death of your son Jesus Christ, we're seeing a picture of your love on our behalf. And I pray that we would fix our eyes on that truth today. God, I also pray that you would help us to understand our need to love those around us. And so I pray that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are quick to obey. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If I were to hand each of you a sheet of paper this morning and to send it around and kind of take a survey 
and to ask the question to you each, uh, what is the essential things that need to be kind of the priority of the church? Uh, and, and then you were to write that list out. I wonder if all of us, when we gathered that back up, would have a very similar list. I, I think we would because we're Christians in this room. I, I think for most of us, prayer would be on the list as we think about praying for the church and praying for those outside of the church and then praying for the church even when we're not uh, present in the church. And I think for many of us, preaching would make that list, preaching of the gospel, preaching of the scriptures and the importance of being uh, a person of integrity when we do that and the praise, the fruit of our lips, what we just did with the instruments behind there. Bible tells us that's pleasing to the Lord. For some of you, fellowship is extremely important. As a matter of fact, when we did a little survey for the church, one of the top things that people uh, wanted and desired in this church were small groups. They wanted to, quote unquote, do life together. And so those small groups have, have now launched and there's several of those going. And then many people have said through those small groups, now we're doing outreach things. And all of those are good. All of those are necessary. And, and most importantly, all of those are biblical things. But I wonder... If any of you would put on the list love, love as a priority in the church, because you have to understand something, love is literally the glue that holds all of those things together. Love holds fellowship together, love holds uh, the prayer together, love holds fellowship together, and, and we have to have love in the church. Think about this for just a moment, the prominence of love in all of the word of God. As a matter of fact, if you go to 1 John chapter 4, and I'm not asking you to do it right now, but if you were to go to 1 John chapter 4 and look down around verse 8, we would call that John's version of the love chapter. Repeatedly, over and over and over, John uses this word love in 1 John chapter 4. And when we're talking about the character of God and we say, what is it when we look at God and we think about the essence and character of God, what is it that makes God God? And John gives one of those God is statements. God is spirit and God is holy. But there John tells us, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. And then you go to the Old Testament. And you think of those 600 plus laws and you think of all those things that, that were uh, in the Old Testament required to do, the sacrificial system and all those things. And you say, what's the key to the law of those 600 laws? And Moses tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, that the key to all the law is this one thing, to love God. And then you skip over to Leviticus where some of you are starting in your read through the Bible plan in a year and many of you will get about two or three chapters in and you'll say, okay, now it's time to move on to something else. Because we see the holiness codes there, all of those dietary things and all of those purity laws where you have to wash your hands and everything. But if you go to the middle of that book, Leviticus chapter 18, we see there that one of the parts of the law, all of this holiness code is built around, around this one reality that we have to love our neighbors, right? You see the prominence of love all throughout the Bible, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament. And then we get to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus ramps things up a little bit there. Jesus says, yes, it's important to love your neighbor. It's important to love God. But you also, you remember this? You have to love your enemies and you have to pray for them. That tells you how prominent love is in the Bible. Fruit of the Spirit. Can I quiz you for just a moment? Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit. 
when the Spirit of God is in a man or a woman, it manifests itself outwardly. Can I ask you, everybody, okay, everybody, if you grew up in Sunday school, you had the little boards where they put the fruits of the Spirit on, I'm going to ask you this. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22, love. That's exactly right. The first thing that happens to a person when they're transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit is they are a person of love. I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of you, when we sang that song, felt like you were a hippie? Uh, I, I mean, you, when we hear that they'll know we are Christians by our love, I mean, instantly, that's what I think of. I think of the Jesus movement, and I, I was like, I, getting back into my hippie days when I had long hair, and I didn't ever have long hair. Just, um, but here's the reality. That song is actually built on a statement by Jesus. John 13, 35 says, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples. Not that you uh, read through the Bible in a year. That's important. Not that you just hang out with Christians. Not that all five buttons in your car are all pre-programmed to Caleb. That's not the mark of a Christian. The mark of a Christian, according to Jesus, is this. If you love one another. So here's what I want us to do as you see the prominence of love here. I want us to consider the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for just a moment. The Corinthian church was a messed up place. I mean, they had disunity in the church. They had sexual immorality in the church. They had some idolatry going on in the church. And Paul was having to write to them because of these various areas of sin that they were battling. Some of it was in correspondence that someone had read, uh, 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 written Paul, and Paul was then responding to those letters he received. Well, one of the things that Paul had to address was this issue of spiritual gifts. Not the fact that people had spiritual gifts, but the fact that they were boasting about their spiritual gifts. And it literally became a situation, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see this, where the spiritual gifts became a situation of look at me and look at the gifts that I possess. As a matter of fact, I'm so gifted, I'm so talented that I look down my nose at anyone who doesn't share the same gift. So here's the ultimate problem as we get toward the end of 1 Corinthians is that the people are high on the gifts. They have them, but they're low on love. And so Paul in chapter 12 and chapter 14 has to address this issue of spiritual gifts. And here's what he does to start, okay? I want to tell you what he does to start. Paul first starts with saying, let me tell you what the purpose of the gifts are. Chapter 12, chapter 14. Would you look with me at chapter 12, verse 7, and see what the purpose of the gifts are? Uh, they'd completely missed it with this in their boasting. If you look there at verse 7, he says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So every person who's ever been saved has some kind of manifestation of the Spirit. Uh, they have this gift or that gift. They, they can do this or that for the church. And Paul says, let me tell you what the purpose of those gifts are. Look with me at the end of, uh, of, of verse 7. He says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given, don't miss this, for the common good. 
That's the purpose of the gift. Not for you to boast, not for you to put yourself on a pedestal, not for you to say, look at me and look at all the gifts that I have. It is for the common good of the church. Now, if you skip over to chapter 14 and you look with me at verse 4 and 5, he's going to do this again. And he's speaking about one of those gifts that's really uh, boasted on in the church, the gift of tongues. And we could get into debates that have been going on for 2,000 years about the issue of tongues. Are you a cessationist or a non-cessationist? Are you a charismatic or are you a Baptist and, and you don't believe in those things? But here's the reality. Something like that was going on in the Corinthian church. And he says here in verse 4, One who speaks in a tongue, listen closely, edifies himself. Okay? So this issue of tongues in this text is not about building up the church. It's about edifying the self. He goes on. But one who prophesies edifies the church. There's the difference in the gift. Now, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, but even more than that, that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongue, unless he interprets it so that the church may receive edifying. Even in this very controversial gift, guess what? It has to be for the edification of the church. What's the purpose of the gifts? To build other people up. Now, this is where I want you to listen very carefully for just a moment. If you took chapter 12 and you took chapter 14, you would recognize that they're dealing with the exact same subjects. And everyone recognizes this, that if you took chapter 12 and chapter 14 and you removed chapter 13 and you pushed those two chapters together, guess what you would see? A seamless move from one verse to the other. It, it's as if Paul never misses a beat. He just goes from this subject of spiritual gifts and continues it on in chapter 14. So here's what a lot of people have said in history. Somewhere down the road, Paul wrote this chapter about 13, and there was just this awkward moment where he had to figure out where to stick it, and he stuck it between chapters 12 and chapters 13. But can I tell you something? This actually, this chapter, has everything to do with the spiritual gifts. And, and let me tell you why. All of the spiritual gifts not only should be done for the edification of the church, but must be done in a spirit of love. That's the point. That's the point. Uh, not only must they be done in a spirit of love, they must be practiced in a context of love. So here's the point of 1 Corinthians 13, and I want to give you one point, okay? That's all we're going to work with today. Can everybody say, all God's people said, amen. I'm going to give you one point, and it will turn into 10 points, but I'm going to give you one point, and that's all I want you to take away. The priority of love. That's the only point I want you to get today. The priority of love. If you want to call it the preeminence of love, I'm fine with that. But it is the priority of love. Listen carefully. If love isn't present, if love is not the priority, then you lose the power of the gift. It's so extremely important that you see this. If love isn't present, it's not the priority. You lose the power of the gift and you lose the usefulness of the gift. And here's the most important thing. The ministry without love is completely diminished. Completely diminished. 
So in verses 1 through 3, let's get over there. I want to tell you what's going on here. Paul is going to lay out for us some spiritual gifts, and then he's going to show us what happens to them when love is absent. And this is extremely practical. So I have to work through a couple of contextual things with you for you to get really the the nutrients out of this text. The first thing that I want to tell you is that Paul is going to personalize this text. Would you look at verse 13? Don't miss this. It's important. Paul says, if I speak. So there's a little bit of personalization of this passage. If I speak with the tongues of men. But there's also, okay, there's also a sense of hyperbole in this text. And if you don't know what hyperbole is, it's a form of exaggeration. Paul is imagining himself having the gifts to their greatest extent. Not, not having just one gift or a, a gift that he has in, in kind of a, a, a little partial sense. Paul's imagining himself having the gifts in their greatest extent. That, that's the kind of person that he's going to present to us. The other thing that I want you to see when we talk about this issue of love is the word love. Because a lot of people say, what does love mean? And, and you know that throughout history, we've been asking those questions, right? Wasn't there a song that says, I want to know what love is? Are any people my age here that, that remember foreigner asking the question, I want to know what love is? Won't somebody show me? <laughs> I want to know what love is. Here's the reality. It's hard to define love if we don't peel back the layers. Behind this word love is the word agape. Agape. And, and here's what agape love is. It's God's love. It is divine love. It's, it, it's the love that God has toward his own, the, the charitable love or the unconditional love. And you say, well, give me a definition of that. I'm going to. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. That's agape love. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So let's look at these gifts, okay? And let's consider them with the absence of love. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1 says, If I speak, Paul's talking here about gifts of speech. Uh, some people say, well, this is the issue of tongues. We're just going to zero in and say, these are gifts of speech. If I speak with the tongues of men. Let's stop right here for just a moment. Paul's talking about here having the gift of speaking. And what we mean by that is that someone is eloquent and someone is clear when they speak and someone can command a room when they speak. If I have the tongues of men to, to the greatest extent, when I was in seminary, my professor put in a CD and that'll just show you how times have changed. We went from eight tracks to cassettes and then to CDs and now we don't even use those. He, he put this in, and it was a man from Texas, and his name was Joel Gregory. And I don't know if you've ever heard Joel Gregory speak, but Joel Gregory, when he would speak, would literally, in your ears, let me tell you what it would sound like. If butter had a sound, do you know how delicious butter is? Or maybe we say if bacon had a sound. That's what Joel Gregory's voice sounded like in your ear. Maybe you don't know who Joel Gregory is, but he was uh, clear. He had a deep voice, 
And everybody, when he would speak, would listen. For some of you, maybe you think back to the early years of Billy Graham, who could command an entire audience, and everybody would be on the edge of their seats as Billy Graham would speak. Now, as a pastor, can I tell you something? Everybody wants that gift. Everybody wants to speak with clarity. Everybody wants uh, people to listen. Everybody wants a person to be hanging on the edge of their seat. That's the kind of gift Paul's speaking of here. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says. If I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels. This is angelic language. Now, this is where all the debates come up. Uh, Can you do this? Can you do that? Listen to what Paul says, would you? If I could do that. If I could speak with complete eloquence, if I could speak in the tongues of angels, but don't miss the point of the text in verse 1. But do not have love. Here's the point. You have the gift, but you lack the love. And the lack of love that you have is toward the people you're trying to speak to. You're trying to minister to them, and you don't have love in your heart for them, and they know it. Guess what happens? Parents, please hear me. Grandparents, please hear me. Your words will not be heard. As a matter of fact, it will be painful when people listen to you. How many of you, by show of hands, we didn't have very many in the first service. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever experienced in your home a first-year band student? Everybody's laughing because they know the pain that I'm speaking of. The trumpet the flute, the drum, and and the incessant playing, and they say, I have to do these things. And the parents are saying, when will it stop? And, And we're gracious, and we let it continue, but you know how painful that is in your ears. Would you look at what Paul says happens to the person with all of this eloquence, with the ability to speak in the tongues of angels that lack love? He says this, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Pagan religion used these types of instruments. Paul says, if you're a person who has all these gifts and you don't have love, you're no better than pagan religion. I mean, it's just loud noises. Nobody can hear you. We all have someone in our life. We all do. We have someone in our life that when they speak, we stiffen up. When we hear them speak, we bristle or get anxious. And here's what we know. We know they don't love us. But have you ever had somebody in your life who when they spoke to you, even if they spoke directly to you, we knew, we knew for a fact that they loved us. And what would we do? We would completely put our guard down with that person, even if they spoke directly to us. Would you turn with me to the right of your Bible, to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a text really about spiritual gifting, but it's what comes through the people, that there's pastors and teachers and and apostles and prophets and all those things, evangelists, and, and what they do for the church. But notice what he says here in verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. 
There's a lot going on here, but one thing that he says has to happen is that we speak truth. We want to be direct. We don't want to compromise. We don't want to water things down. We don't want to play fast and loose with what God says. But it must be coupled with something else. Don't miss that. It must be coupled with love. Speaking the truth in love. There are a lot of people, you know what they say? I have the gift of speaking straight with people. I have the gift of being direct. And guess what? You're also a jerk. Okay? Uh, Without love, that's all you are. I'm going to use Paul's modern translation. Uh, We must couple it with love. I'm going to give you an example of this. Jesus spoke directly to the woman at the well. And you know what he said to her? And this, this in our, even in my ears as a pastor, this sounds harsh. She comes to him, and he's talking about her marital status. You know what he says? You've been married five times. And the guy that you're living with, guess what? He's not even your husband. And you go, whoa. Time to bristle and run off. And what does she do? She stays there with him and listens. Why? Because Jesus loved her. Jesus cared for her. And eventually, you know what she went back and did? She went back to her village and said, there's a man who knows everything about me. And she didn't say he was a real jerk. (laughs) She just said, there's a man who knows everything about me. I want you to meet him. That's speaking the truth in love. Direct, yes. Filled with truth, yes. But also coupled with love. Now, in verse 2 starts the picture of another gift. And it's the gift of what we would call prophecy here. Notice he says, if I have the gift of prophecy. Uh, Some people believe that this is the ability to look into the future. Some people believe that this is somehow to say, I can look at the Old Testament and understand the prophecies of the Old Testament. Let me give you a simpler way of thinking about this. You know the purpose and will of God and you're, unable to, uh, you're able to unpack the word of God for people. Uh, that's prophetic, right? That's having the gift of prophecy. When I was in seminary, and some of you know this man, some of you don't, there was a man who became wildly popular at that time. His name was Paul Washer. And one of my other professors had gone to hear Paul Washer speak in a big setting. And I said, man, how was it being in the room with Paul Washer? And he said, he is a modern day prophet. He didn't mean Paul was there, uh, Paul Washer was there speaking about the future. He was literally saying he was uncompromised in the Word of God. That's what we're talking about here. A, A person who has the gift of prophecy. But notice, it's not just the gift of prophecy. He says they also have the gift of knowing all mysteries. Don't miss that word there. Please underline it in your passage there. Know all mysteries. I don't know how many in this room have ever tried to explain the Trinity to someone. And you say, I failed miserably when I did this. And that's this reason. Every definition of the Trinity falls short. You know why? Because it's a mystery. Is God three in one? Absolutely. Can you explain it? Probably not. (laughs) But guess what this person has the ability to do? They can explain the Trinity. Why do good people suffer and 
those who seem to break the rules get ahead. Why do they? Paul says they know all mysteries. They understand that type of thing. As a matter of fact, they know it and they have insight into it. And then notice, not only that, they have all uh, knowledge of all mysteries, but they have all knowledge. They know all mysteries and they have all knowledge. You've literally got the wisdom of Solomon at your disposal. You, you have knowledge about all kinds of subjects. I want to give you a name, and I didn't know who this was, and some people snickered at me when I said this name. I didn't know who he was. Neil D. Tyson. He studied at Harvard. He's an astrophysicist. If you've ever heard him speak on any topic, here's what I can tell you. You will understand what he's talking about. He can take these complex subjects and bring them down where you just go, hey, I get it. He's talking about astrophysics, I feel like I get this. Chemistry, physics, I get it. Because he speaks on it. He has knowledge on a broad swath of subjects. And then he adds something to this. Verse 2. Mountain moving faith. God says it in his word and I never waver in believing it. Look at verse 2. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains. That's the kind of mountain moving faith that Jesus was talking about here. This is that we believe with all of our heart that nothing is impossible with God. That's a pretty heavily equipped person, isn't it? I want to stop right here and tell you that this is the picture, I believe, of a perfect church member. They know the Word of God. They can unpack the Word of God. They believe the Word of God. They understand the mysteries of God Look at verse 2 about this perfect church member. But do not have love. I want to be very honest with you this morning. If I saw a person that gifted and I knew they weren't loving, I might say, God, I'm willing to compromise just a little bit. <laughs> right? I mean, they've got all these gifts. They just don't have love. Surely we can overlook this. All in one person, so much to give to the church. Surely we could just look at this shortcoming and say, hey, they don't have love. It's okay. But would you look at what Paul says in the conclusion? Paul says that kind of person, so gifted with all these extensive gifts, he says, I am nothing. You may be somebody in your own eyes, but in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the church, you're a nobody. You're a nobody. I don't know how many of you were in my Sunday school class several weeks ago, and I encourage you to download a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. More appropriately, it should be titled The Rise and Fall of Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll planted a church in, uh, called Mars Hill in Seattle, Washington, which is, by the way, an unlikely place to plant a successful church, and the church exploded there. Driscoll, when he spoke, could command a room. He wrote volumes of bestsellers on theology in the church, known all over the world. And 15 years ago, if you went to a Christian conference, I promise you, Driscoll was one of the keynote speakers. He was in every conference, on every bookshelf. Everybody downloaded his podcast. Everybody sent them around. Known all over the world, like I said. And all of a sudden, people started to leave this church of 10,000 plus in droves in droves. And all of a sudden, all over the internet, you know what started to pop up? 
support groups for those leaving Mars Hill. You say, what in the world? I mean, writing volumes, command a room, all those things. And here's what you find out. Behind closed doors, Driscoll was crude. He was abusive. And he was hateful. And this church of multiple thousands upon multiple thousands literally imploded and no longer exists. Gifted, yes. Lacking a gift, no. But loving, no. Paul says, I am nothing. Would you look with me at verse 3 at this last gift? The next gift that Paul mentions is the gift of giving. And first he talks about material giving. Verse 3, if I give, here's the hyperbole, all my possessions to the poor. Paul says I could give all that I have, materially speaking, to another person, not just a portion of it, but all of it. Okay? And this is not a person looking for a tax write-off at the end of the year and to get a giving statement from a charitable organization. They're giving all of their possessions to feed the poor. Now we can see that that would be an enormous sacrifice. But Paul doesn't stop with that gift. He now moves on to say that this person not only gave materially, but they gave themselves literally physically to the point of death. Did you see it there? If I deliver my body to be burned. This is the ultimate picture of Romans chapter 12. By the way, don't do this, okay? I don't want you to go and do this, but Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know what it says? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is the person who literally takes this and applies it on behalf of others. They go out and give themselves as a martyr for God. Verse 3, don't miss this. But do not have love. Here's what he concludes. It profits me nothing. As enormous as those sacrifices sound, they are absolutely worthless apart from love. You can have all the gifts to their greatest extent. You don't have love and you're nothing. You have no profitability to any of those things. Would you close your Bibles with me this morning? And please hear me for just two minutes of application. Ministry without love is destructive. You see it, Mark Driscoll. You haven't heard the podcast, pull it up. And most people say, I was shocked when I listened. Ministry without love is destructive relationships without love are destructive right parenting without love is destructive employment without love is destructive but let me give you the flip side of this ministry with love is transformative and this is a huge application the church is a better place with love at the center of what we do Marriage is a healthier thing with love at the center. Friendships are stronger with love at the center because love is literally the glue that holds everything else together. 
the workplace can flourish in a context of love. Now, some of you know this, that Gretchen and I have a zany household. Every week that I prepare my sermons, I go in and preach them to her first, and you say, oh, wow, how much fun do you guys have during the week? As I lay that out, and I say, I want you to hear this, and I want you to put your ears, and I, I want to see what you think here. And I went in, and I, I, just, I just literally started reading the text to her, and you know what she did in the middle of this? She stopped me and said, but who's like this? I mean, who's giving all their possessions and who's giving their body and, and who loves people this perfectly? And I said, well, he's using hyperbole here, right? He's using hyperbole. And, and I thought that all week. I was just like, I had to put my wife in her place, <laughs> tell, her how, tell her how things are theologically speaking. But she was, she was a little bit frustrated. She just said, who, who is this person? I said, well, he's using hyperbole. And you know what I figured out at the end of the week? There is a person like this. And you know who it is? His name is Jesus. He was the only person to possess all of these gifts and to love people perfectly. And he did it, guess what, on our behalf. He did it for our good. He sacrificed himself for us out of love. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yesterday, I was with a group of believers in Hinton, Oklahoma, and the song leader read or sang this song, and I'll read it. I won't burden you with my terrible singing. But I love the hymns for this reason. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my savior's love for me and then this is my favorite part and my hair is still standing on end would you stand with me and, and i'm going to read this last stanza and i i want you to do something we we didn't do this in the first service so i'm gonna have you do it i want you to close your eyes and listen to this okay listen to these words when with the ransomed in glory, his face I shall last, at last see. Twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the love of Christ that when we fall short, and we will, God, that he has stood in our place. But God, he's also died a death on our behalf so that we could live on behalf of others. And that filled with your spirit and filled with your wisdom and knowledge, God, that we do things to edify others and to love them the way Christ loved us. And so, God, I pray that as we're working through the complexities of love and, and thinking about how it applies to the church, God, that you would give us the wisdom to know when we're not being a loving person and that we would repent of that. God, that we wouldn't stay stubborn and stay in our sin, Lord, but we would look and say, we have to love the way Christ has loved us. And God, I pray that if there are any here today who don't know the love of Christ, that today they would just open their hands and receive the free gift of eternal life. 
And God, we praise you and thank you for all of this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about our church, please visit cashinfbc.org.